Hey everyone, I want to take a little time and share with you some meditations that I've been having uh, in the book of Colossians. The coronavirus has shut down our world in so many ways, and many of the things that used to govern our schedules, and at least the free time in our schedules, I know many of you and uh, many of us are still working Uh, It's a different kind of work, working from home in ways that we're not used to. But many of the things that used to govern the non-work portions of our schedule are just no longer options for us. Uh, So many of the extracurricular things that we would do with our children, with our families, on our own, the things that we would do outside of work have been taken off the table. And for a lot of people, this is very discouraging But I can't help but think that this is far from a tragedy. It's actually a gift. And it's been my prayer throughout our sheltering in place that Christians worldwide would be able to take inventory of their lives and specifically their schedules now that a lot of our schedules have been shut down. That we would be able to take inventory of that and I pray hit the reset button on a lot of things. Hit the reset button on a lot of things. And so what I'm hoping is that this meditation through portions of Colossians will help us to think along those lines. We are going to behold uh, some glorious pictures of Christ, some glorious statements about Jesus. So before we jump into this, let me just pray briefly for us. And then we are going to uh, just look through and think through some meditations in the book of Colossians today. Father, thank you for today and thank you for the word of God. Thank you for this astounding depiction of the glory of Christ that this book gives to the church and to the world. God, I pray that our hearts would be stirred. Lord, stirred with passions and Lord, with affections for Jesus that we might be able to now in this season of sheltering, Lord, in this season of not being able to do so many things that we were able to do before, think about what does the glory of Christ mean for my schedule when I get to hit the restart button? What sort of things could I do, should I do? What things should I be aware of and beware of? And so, Father, I pray that you would do that for us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start by looking at Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Paul says, him we proclaim, and the him that he is talking about is Jesus. And the portrayal that Paul has put forth of Jesus to this point in the book of Colossians is beyond Amazing. Paul says that this Jesus, who he proclaims in 128, this Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's Jesus who all things have been created in, through, and for. Chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
Paul goes on to say that he's before all things. It's in Jesus, Paul says, that all things hold together. The very fabric of the universe is held together by this Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church. And then Paul says this, he's the beginning, that is to say the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the one, the firstborn, the one who has overcome death through his resurrection. Death no longer has a claim on Jesus. And it is this resurrection of Jesus that is the hope of our resurrection, that Jesus has not only tasted death on our behalf, but he has defeated death on our behalf. Because of this, he is to be preeminent, Paul says. Jesus is to have first place in everything. And then in verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And if that's not enough, in verse 20 of chapter 1, Paul says that it's through Jesus that God will reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, it is Jesus who will bring about the reconciliation, not merely of individual sinners who have been reconciled to a holy God, which we have been if we place our faith in Jesus. It's not merely that, but it will be through Jesus and his work on the cross through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension that God will ultimately see the reconciliation and the restoration of the entire created universe. Now, in verse 28 of chapter 1, Paul says, Him we proclaim. It's this Jesus that we proclaim, that we make known. This is what we do. And then Paul continues, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And now this is going to serve as something of a roadmap for what Paul is going to do in the following couple chapters and perhaps even the rest of the book. But this is what Paul says, that this proclamation, when, when Jesus is proclaimed, it involves two things. First, warning everyone. When Christ is proclaimed... It has to come with this warning. What is meant by that? Well, to give warning in this way is just to give somebody counsel to stop doing things that are not proper. So the glory of Christ demands that there are certain things in our lives that we should stop doing because they either do not make enough of the glory of Christ, or they lead us away from becoming more like Jesus. And so, a part of proclaiming the gospel, a part of making Christ known is, of course, lovingly, but, but is telling people, hey, that thing, this manner of living, whatever it may be, is not in accordance with Christ. And so, there is the warning, and then Paul says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Now, teaching is the flip side of this. This is positive instruction, so not the negative prohibition, hey, we shouldn't do that, but positive instruction. 
that is given so that we can build our life around the person and work of Jesus. And then he says this, what's the purpose of that? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, that word mature is good in many ways, but I think it it doesn't come with the force of the Greek word that Paul is using here. When Paul says this, he talks about wanting to present everyone mature in Christ. This word speaks, when it speaks of people, it speaks of persons who are fully up to standard in a certain respect. And then it says this, and not satisfied with halfway measures. The purpose of Paul proclaiming Jesus through warning giving counsel to not do certain things and then teaching and instructing about the truth of Jesus and a life that would be based on that truth, the purpose of doing that is that they then, that Paul and and all of us teachers and leaders would be able to present everyone mature in Christ. Everyone. This is the goal for every Christian, that Christians would be built up They would be fully up to standard and that they would not be satisfied with halfway measures. And that just got me thinking, like, we have time right now. I pray, I pray that you have time, more time than you have had in a long time to contemplate these things, to ask ourselves, are there areas in my Christian life where I have just simply been satisfied with halfway measures? Now I understand we're all in process and that's okay. None of us, are fully up to the standard of complete Christ-likeness. We get that, but here's the thing. The question is not, are you completely up to standard? The question is, are you satisfied with halfway measures? And I, I really want that to kind of be the focus of what God is doing in our hearts. Asking ourselves, have we settled have we settled for lesser things? And they may not always be bad things. They may just be lesser things. Have we settled for things that are not like purposefully geared to conforming us into the image of Jesus? And so what we want to do as we walk through the, the text of Colossians chapter 2 is I just, I just want us to take those two um two like parts of proclamation. So the warning and the teaching aspects. And I I want us to see how Paul kind of plays off of that. Now we're not going to do an in-depth study of this. Again, this is more meditations. Uh, And so in chapter two, Paul says this, for I want you to know, this is verse one, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, that would be a great text for a sermon someday, but right now, 
what I want us to look at and to think about is that Paul says, in essence, to understand Jesus as the fulfillment of God's plan, which is to say God's mystery, which is revealed in Christ. That's what it means, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plans, promises, and purposes. That's what Paul is saying there. To understand that, to understand Jesus at the very center of all that God has ever been planning to do, is doing, and all that God will ever do, to understand that, Paul says, is to gain great riches. And that's what verse 2 is talking about, that, that the hearts of God's people will be knit together as we move towards greater and greater understanding of this great mystery of God, which is Christ Jesus. Now, the word mystery isn't like a whodunit murder mystery. It's that idea of the revelation of Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of God's plans. And so here Paul is telling us, listen, guys, we need to understand that, that there is this great wealth in growing in our knowledge of understanding who Jesus is, the centrality of Jesus to all of God's plans. And as we do that, as we dive deeper and deeper into this knowledge of Christ, Paul says that this is riches for us. This is wealth beyond anything imaginable. Now, Paul also has a warning for them in verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So Paul lays out for them. He, he, he tells them that he's struggling for them. He wants their hearts to be encouraged and knit together in love and in this pursuit of understanding like just the massive glory of Jesus as central to God's plan. And he says it because he's concerned that they might be deluded or deceived with plausible arguments or persuasive argumentation. And Paul says this because he is aware of the constant pressure that comes upon God's people to build our lives on anything that isn't Jesus. There is just a constant pressure from the world from our own flesh and through the schemes of the enemy for us to be led away from the centrality of Jesus in all things, which really is just a way to rob us of these riches. Like the enemy does not want us accumulating these riches. He wants us destitute, begging, devoid of all of these great gifts that God has for us. And so this is always the purpose and the plan of the enemy. And this is the way that our sin that remains in us works as well, is that if, if the enemy can get our mind and if our sin can get our mind off of the glory of Christ and to take our eyes off Christ for just a moment, then then we are susceptible to these things. We are susceptible for other arguments that, that certain things might be better for us. And, and as I was thinking about this, this talks about persuasive argumentation, persuasive speech. 
But as I was thinking about it, I thought to myself, sometimes the most persuasive argument to, to get us to take our eyes off Jesus and not see him as the greatest treasure are the arguments that are never spoken. It, it could, be the, could be the persuasive argument that comes from the new house uh, that you see for sale down the road that looks just a little bigger than yours. And, and, and that idea that, man, if I just had that, I could be happy. Or the new car that your neighbor has. As you look at that and go, man, maybe I should put in some overtime because if I had that car, I could be happy. Perhaps it's the plausible argument that is put forth, not verbally, but by the boss at your workplace. And you know, like you look at that person and now they've got to that job maybe that you've always dreamed about. But here's the argument that comes forth. It took them working 70 to 80 hours a week to get to where they are. And so the, the argument that is never spoken is the argument that if you want this job that you've always wanted, that you think will bring you happiness, then you need to work like that. And all of these arguments are deception. It's being deluded when we believe these, Paul says. We're, we're deluded, we're deceived. And so what Paul does is he's going to focus, and this is what he does in the rest of this chapter and throughout the book. He's going to focus on painting for us this glorious picture of the Lord Jesus so that we would be so enamored by Christ that we could not be deceived by the world. We would be so taken and smitten with Jesus that that everything else around us would be seen for what it is, lesser and false glories. That's why Paul will say in verses six and seven, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you received him, so walk in him. I know for many, uh, there is this moment when you first come to faith in Christ and, and there is this overwhelming sense of the goodness and of the glory of Jesus And when you receive Jesus, you receive him as both Savior and Lord. And it is this joyful submission to the Lordship of Jesus. And Paul says, as you received him, so now continue to live your life in him. Walk in him. Being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You see that link there that when... When we walk in Jesus, when we are so joyfully living our lives centered around Jesus, that everything else looks like just this this lesser stuff that we don't really need to think that much about, it's going to bring about an abundance of thanksgiving. When you're walking with Jesus at the center of your life, You will be so overjoyed that you will just want to give thanks. And even when you're not full of that joy, it's the understanding of what Jesus has done for you that will still lead you to give thanksgiving. Because we know, like there are those moments when it's like, yeah, this is amazing. Jesus, I love you. But there's also those moments when we're going to struggle And in the moments when we struggle, we have to remember that we have been established in the faith. We have to remember the truths of the gospel. 
so that we will still be able to be abundant in our thanksgiving. Now, verse eight, Paul says again, and here is the here is Paul saying, okay, I got I gotta warn you again. Verse eight, see to it. See to it. Now this is the idea of like pay close attention. Paul's telling him, hey, church, right? This is written to the church. And so for us today, church, pay close attention. Be very aware of something. Like whatever he's about to say is like something we need to be paying attention to. See to it that no one takes you captive. Hmm. Do not be enslaved. Pay close attention because there are forces and people out there who would like to enslave you. How? <clears throat> By philosophy. Competing worldviews against a worldview that is centered on Christ. So pay close attention that you're not enslaved by philosophy and empty deceit. Empty deceit. These competing worldviews, these things that would lead us to build our life around anything other than Jesus Guys, the idea of empty deceit, like smokescreen and mirrors. You ever been in like at the fair, the, the, those big like rooms with all the mirrors and, and you, you try to get to the end and next thing you know, you're running into a mirror and it's just, it's just deceiving. It's deception. You think there's a clear path here and, and you bounce into another mirror and you try to walk the other way. And, and you know what makes that even worse? when they start to put the fog in the room. I don't know if you've ever been there where there's maybe fog coming up out of it and then it's just like, oh my goodness. And that's what Paul says here. Pay careful attention that you are not enslaved because that's what every other worldview, every other understanding about the world that is not explicitly centered on living my life for Christ. That's what they will do. They will not bring freedom. They will bring slavery. So pay careful attention that you are not taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And then he says this, according to human tradition. And this is a idea that Paul is going to come back to time and time again. Human tradition. Now, Paul is going to use this word and this idea, and it's going to be very much, as he writes to the church of Colossae, um, geared towards them. There are all sorts of traditions that this, this church was having to deal with that were coming in to infiltrate them, to, to take them away from Christ. There was asceticism like the harsh treatment of the body and, and that idea that the body is bad and so you need to kind of beat up your body. Um, and then there was the worship of angels. There was the observing of certain days over other days and needing to maintain all of these crazy things. But here's what's interesting. Paul says here that you need to, I need to, the churches need to be very careful that we're not enslaved by philosophy and empty deception according to human tradition, which means that Paul has in mind not just these specific traditions that were infiltrating and threatening the church at Colossae, but all 
human traditions that would lead us away from Christ, which is why he says, according to human tradition. And so then we have to ask ourselves, are there traditions, patterns that have been handed down, patterns of life that have been handed down generation to generation that we are now accepting as good and as helpful that could be taking us captive to, to worldviews that actually aren't built on Christ. And I, I just think about the, the crazy busyness of our lives so that it becomes hard to even slow down sometimes just to make it to church on Sunday, let alone to, to try to spend quality time in the Word and with Jesus, or to spend quality time, not that we can do this now, though I guess we could through FaceTime and Skype and other virtual avenues, but to spend quality time with believers, to, to set apart times where we would just say, this time is for silence and solitude with my God, so that my heart can be transformed as I behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. Like there, there are these traditions wrapped into our world. And if we don't, like Paul says, actually pay close attention, which I think warrants for us then, it warrants for us a, an inventory of our lives. Have you ever done that? Have you ever stopped and taken an inventory of your life? Just what am I doing? Maybe this way, an inventory of your schedule week to week and look at your schedule. And I would encourage us just to look at like where my time, especially free time, especially your time outside of work, where is that time spent? And what does the way that I spend my time proclaim? What does it reveal about my priorities, my treasures? What do I view as riches? Do I view Christ as the greatest riches? Do I view this deepening understanding of Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's plans as the greatest treasure that I could ever seek? And would my schedule bear that out? Like, I think if you were to look at a a treasure hunter's schedule, like you've ever seen those movies, National Treasure, you go back and watch that, Uh, Benjamin Gates is spending all of his time, every waking hour and every thought, seeking after that treasure. So you look at his schedule and you're like, yeah, what's this guy all about? He's all about the riches of finding that treasure. It's amazing what our schedules will bear out for us. And so so I'll just encourage you to pay close attention, to stop to take time and to take inventory of your life and your schedule and ask yourself, am I pursuing Christ and the knowledge of him as the greatest treasure and riches that I could could store up for myself? Or have I potentially been taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit, smokescreen and mirrors according to traditions, of mankind, traditions handed down to me, of the world around me. And then here is, here is Paul's like, okay, I want you to do this. I want you to pay close attention and here's why. And now for the next however many verses, it is just this exalted like 
trumpet blast of the glory of Jesus. So let's just take a little bit of time. Now we've had kind of this like pleading admonition from me for you to pay close attention and look at your schedules. And here's why. Because this is the one who we're supposed to build our life around. This is the one who is going to make all of these earthly philosophies and human traditions and all of the other riches that we could seek like look like nothing and less than nothing. Like This is why Paul says, hey, I'm asking you to pay close attention, not because I'm trying to be harsh on you guys, like here comes the mean apostle again, but because once you get this picture of Jesus, you'll realize there's nothing better I could do with my life. Verse 9, Colossians 2, 9. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Like you're not going to do better than to follow after and build your life around this one. There are people, they're going to build their life around some human guru. And there are these, there are these human teachers that have been full of wisdom. And like, they've had a lot of good things to say to people, excuse me, and have been very helpful to people's lives. But this human, this guy who was here walking the earth, The fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. Like we would do no better. It's impossible to do better than to build your life around the one who is not only truly man, but truly God. And then Paul says, and you have been filled in him. Like this is where we receive our fullness it hasn't been from these other places or these other philosophies. You, have, you will not be filled eternally in, in the deepest part of who you are by the almighty dollar, by the accolades that you could receive through uh, climbing the career ladder, through, uh, through whatever. It doesn't matter. You've been filled in him. You have been filled in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. Nobody is above Jesus. Nobody has a higher authority than Jesus. None of these principalities and powers, any of the forces of darkness, nothing is over him. And then Paul says this, in him also, in Jesus, you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, Your heart has been made new. You have been born again to a living hope. Having been buried with him in baptism. It's it's Christ Jesus who we have been united to, who we now identify with, with his death and burial. But not only that, we were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. It's in this Jesus that you have received new life. It's in this Jesus that the old person has been put to death. That person who was fixated on sin and self and all of these things that did not lead to life but led ultimately to death and despair. Jesus has put that off. We've been made new in Christ. And so Paul's whole point is, why would you ever want to build your life on anything else? Nothing else made you new. Nothing else dealt with your sin and the deadness of your heart and gave you new life, gave you forgiveness. 
We have been raised with him who was raised from the dead and overcame death. Like, why would we look anywhere else? Or as God says through Jeremiah, why would we dig cisterns that cannot hold any water when we have been offered living water, abundant springs of water in Christ? Verse 13, Paul says that you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us of all our trespasses. If you're in Christ today, rejoice. And here's more motivation to build your life around him because in Christ there is not one stain that remains. There is not one transgression or trespass that remains on our record. They have all been wiped clean in Jesus. You stand no longer condemned but declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. There was a debt, Paul says in verse 14, of decrees that stood against us. There were legal demands because of our sins and trespasses that placed us under divine judgment. Jesus took that debt, that record of all of our trespasses, past, present, and future, and he put it aside by nailing it to the cross. Jesus became your debt and my debt. It was as if all of our transgressions and the legal demands of God's justice against them were written in and on the person of Christ. And then he allowed himself to be nailed to the cross and he dealt with that debt. Our debt is paid in full because of Christ. Then he says this, he also disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over by triumphing over them in him. So God has triumphed over all of these forces of darkness in Jesus. This is a glorious depiction of Christ and all that we have in him. And so Paul is asking, why would you want to build your life around anything else? And so if we think back to Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him warning everyone and teaching everyone. It's good. It's good that we would, in love and care for one another, warn each other and instruct each other so that we could then pursue with our whole hearts this Christ and a life built around him so that we might experience the overwhelming and overabundant riches that are ours in Jesus. And so in verse 16, Paul says that we shouldn't let people pass judgment on us. Now, Paul says here in questions to food or drink with regard to a festival, new moon, Sabbath, any of these things, speaking specifically of those things in the Mosaic Law, verse 17, he says, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so for the Jewish people, they had had their life and their their understanding of their religious life and their social life and all of that built around the Mosaic Law. And it was structured with festivals and new moons and Sabbaths and all these things. And Paul says, that was great, but here's the thing. Those were just a shadow of what was to come. 
the thing itself belongs to Christ. I'm sitting here right now at a desk and the lights are on in the room and I see a shadow of the couch in front of me. And the shadow is kind of cool, but it's nowhere near as cool as the couch. Like the couch, I can see colors, I can see it all. I can sit on the couch, it's comfy. I could lay down uh, if I wanted to, whatever. Like why would we want the shadow instead of the thing, the substance itself? All of this to say, like, like these meditations have all been geared towards this. Are you willing with this time down to pay close attention, to see to it, that you're not taken captive. Are you willing right now to take an inventory of your life and your schedule? And, and I would say this, look for ways. I'm, I'm looking for ways where I can hit the reset button on certain parts of my schedule. Thinking through, even right now, thinking through like the nature of the church plan and how to go about it. And, and were there areas of thought and life where it's just too caught up in certain things? A- and make Jesus the center of all that we do. I think if we're honest with ourselves, all of us, all of us can find areas where it's like, okay, okay, yeah, I I, I think I was taken a little captive here. I I think I was led away from the centrality of Jesus in my life. Are Are we working more hours than is necessary to, to provide for our family? Do we have a a style of living that is above what we need? And is it because we think that a certain style of living, a certain um, a certain size of, of house, and now, now granted, you got more kids, you can need more rooms. I get that, but I mean, like, are we living above what is necessary for us to build our lives around Jesus? Um, other things that we could think through, like, is my schedule so packed with extracurricular things for either myself or my children that, that I don't have time for the Lord? Or maybe my schedule's not packed and, and I would rather watch Netflix than I would meditate on Scripture I'm not saying that watching a movie is bad. I, I enjoy a movie. I think it's good to unwind at times. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is, are there ways, though, that maybe, just maybe, we have been led astray from, from a life that keeps Jesus as our center and our greatest treasure? Are we content with day after day going by and not being in the Word? Do we think that... Just showing up to church or listening to a message is enough for me to be filled. And there's there's a thousand different ways, I think, that this could play out. But my only encouragement at the end of this would just be this, that you should go through and read Colossians. Read Colossians and look at the glorious depiction of Jesus and just meditate on how awesome and amazing and infinite and eternal and beyond anything we could imagine Jesus really is. He's the one who is going to like make the mess that this world is. Did you know that it's through Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, it's through Jesus that one day there will never, ever be a global pandemic again. We won't have to worry about sickness 
Christ will have taken it, has taken it on the cross. And when he returns and when the new heavens and the new earth come with him, those things will be no more. He's glorious beyond description. And so I would encourage you today to spend time thinking about this Christ whom God has revealed himself in and who has paid our debt, who has reconciled us to God and will, in the culmination of the ages, reconcile all things to God, will restore this earth. Take some time. Think about this Christ. I pray that it encourages your heart today. I pray that this season of shutdown in the coronavirus becomes a a, a turning point for many things in all of our lives. And would you do this? Would you pray the same for me? Thank you, guys.